This is Dr. C, and I'm stoked to welcome you to an episode of Christory the Podcast. When history is told by Christine, the good old days, and even the not-so-good old days, will make you nod your head. I'm glad you made it to the party. Let's do this. Wishing you welcome again to Christory, where history rules and it's always an adventure. At least the history that we explore here. We'll leave the boring stuff in the beaten track to someone else. This is Dr. Christine Contrada, and in today's episode of Christory, the podcast, we continue with our theme of chance meetings, but we're mixing it up and keeping it fresh on location in Bulgaria. I'd like to take you along for the ride, and it's going to be a bit of a bumpy ride, so buckle up as we bounce around Sofia chasing history. If you haven't had the chance to read the blog posted this week at Christory Online, check it out. Using the somewhat shocking monument to Soviet soldiers in Sofia, it considers some of the many complexities around monuments. It's sure to get your brain churning. When to put them up and when to take them down only scratches the surface. So monuments it is, but let's keep things timely. Earlier this week, May 1st, marked International Workers' Day which is some good mood lighting for us to shift from our Italian Marxist firecracker of a philosopher Gramsci, who was the subject of Christery's last podcast, to a stroll through a garden of monuments at the Museum of Socialist Art in Sofia, Bulgaria. So what is May Day anyway? It's also known as Labor Day for much of the world, but not in the U.S., May Day has been dedicated across the globe to celebrating and championing for the working classes since 1889, when Marxist International Socialist Congress members met in Paris, France, mostly to argue amongst themselves about how purely Marxist or not they wanted to be, but also to try to get together enough to support the plight of workers. It has been a day to demonstrate globally and push for workers' rights. Even the Catholic Church got in on the deal by dedicating May 1st to St. Joseph, the patron saint for craftspeople. Historically, it's been a day of massive protests directed at getting those in charge to shake in their boots. For communist heavyweight Vladimir Lenin, May 1st celebrations were even better than Christmas morning. He wrote with enthusiasm in 1896 in a pamphlet written for the occasion, and I quote, Comrades, let us look carefully into the conditions of our life. Let us observe the environment wherein we pass our days. What do we see? We work hard. We create unlimited wealth, gold and riches, fabrics, velvet. We dig iron and coal from the bowels of the earth. We build machines, ships, castles, railways. All the wealth of the world is created by our hands It's obtained by our sweat and our blood. And what reward do we receive for this hard labor? In justice, we should live in fine houses, wear good clothes, and in any case, not want for daily bread. But we all know very well that our wages scarcely suffice for our bare existence. Those are definitely fighting words, and this was like pouring lighter fluid on a forest fire during a drought. I was reading this pamphlet on Ryanair, oops, I mean Ryanair, on a flight zipping back to Rome from Bulgaria. When there's no in-flight entertainment, you got to make your own fun. By the time we touched down, I was ready for revolution. 
But upon my return to Italy, it seemed like Labor Day was nothing but lip service. On Monday, the grocery store was open as usual. The trash collectors were out before dawn. Not a protest in sight. The cover of the newspaper at the airport kiosk announced that the Italian Prime Minister Maloney was working that day in Parliament, pushing, of all days, on that day, cuts to welfare benefits. I admit this first female PM is unapologetically brazen, if nothing else. Perhaps May 1st, 2023 in Italy felt like a flop. But during the Cold War, May Day was a big to-do behind the Iron Curtain. In many cities and towns, workers from both farms and factories took to the streets with banners. It was the perfect occasion for party leaders to garner support. It was also a day for over-the-top military parades. In Bulgaria, Labor Day was first celebrated in 1890, but not declared an official holiday until 1939. The People's Republic of Bulgaria ramped up the holiday in 1945, riding that big wave of nationalism into World War II. And the holiday survived the end of socialism in 1989. Granted, these days it's sans mass events. That all having been said, sometimes it's nice to escape the revolutionary noise. Historians like to get all wild and prehistoric sometimes. In this case, pre-Christoric. In Sofia, there's a collection of rocks and minerals, one of the largest in the world. And it's a great escape from the chaos of man. Rocks don't have revolutions. The collection is housed in a space perfectly frozen in the late 1980s. It took me right back to rock competitions in the middle school science Olympiad. I know, I know, middle school flashbacks are kind of scary. But what I'm thinking now and what I was thinking then are two very different things. These days, the historian between my ears wants to know what it means when we take stone or metal and carve or cast them into larger-than-life faces. And that's what brings us back to this week's question of building monuments. The question of who we build monuments to is a question asked in good company in the Sculpture Garden of Sophia's Museum of Socialist Art. The museum was not established until 2011, amidst a great deal of controversy. It has a collection of art produced between 1944 and 1989, under the influence of the Cold War. It was close to being named the Museum of Totalitarian Art, which gives off a totally different vibe, a far less neutral vibe. But no matter the name, the cult of the charismatic dictator is alive and well in the tiny museum gift shop. Dictators gracing coffee mugs, looking like a boy band. Rather than hiding socialist art in museum basements, like busted old camping gear, here the art has a public space. But it's a safe space. From the halls of government to museum space, Effectively, this museum says communism in Bulgaria firmly into the past tense. The museum itself is full of in-your-face propaganda posters, many of which point to Bulgaria and the Soviet Union being BFFs forever. Also noteworthy are depictions of hard-working, Herculean-sized laborers working happily and busting their butts with great enthusiasm for the good of the state in both agriculture and industry. 
The highlight, in my opinion, was the piece of a large sculpture-filled garden space, which one quickly notices has oddly been taken over by an army of large snails. The grass was unkept enough to hint at a return to nature. Because it's an outdoor space, home to animals and Soviet heavyweights, it was a scene that evoked the brilliance of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Orwell's classic cast these Soviets into an allegorical barnyard, where the communist revolution manifested under the direction of pigs, and one in particular who was obviously a cloven Lenin. One wishes that they had piped in squealing pig noises subtly into the scene for dramatic effect. As I sat in the garden greedily eating a box of rose-flavored Turkish delights, which the camera in my Google Translate app kept telling me is actually Bulgarian delight, I realized that the garden like this was like a literary rabbit hole with a mouthful of candy flavored with Bulgarian rose oil. I remembered where I first heard of this candy. C.S. Lewis used it as the ultimate temptation in the children's classic, The Chronicles of Narnia. Like Edmund, the kid who wandered into the wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'd happily go with an obviously questionable witch and a sled for a mountain of this stuff. In popular imagination, going through a wardrobe to emerge in some kind of an alternate universe that was Narnia, I easily can see the allegorical connection to going behind the Iron Curtain. I'd say what happens in Sophia stays in Sophia, but I'm still finding evidence of my follies in the form of powdered sugar in my suitcase, even though none of that candy actually made it home. Historians on a sugar high might actually be as scary as middle school, but this garden was great. Lenin was the recognizable star of the space. Lenin is globally familiar as the Marxist battle axe of the 1917 Russian Revolution. Here he's everywhere, either with his likeness or as a catalyst behind other figures. His portrait here in the garden has this very severe style, and the expression that he has is one of serious business. Lenin is both thinker and action taker. He breaks remarks on the idea that the revolution would happen organically, and he took it upon himself to light the powder keg that was the revolution in Russia. Ready or not, here I come style. But what about the Bulgarians? Well, Georgi Dimitrov is also in this garden as a centrally placed monumental statue, but he's not so well known. What got me thinking about him was that the nearest metro stop was named after him. After a very confusing walk down an alley and into a parking lot in search of this extremely poorly marked museum, I wondered if I'd ever find that metro stop again. Dimitrov was the first communist leader of Bulgaria. He died very suddenly in Moscow in 1949, and all signs point to poisoning. Stalin was most likely in mean girls mode and deeply unhappy that Dimitrov and Tito were forming their own Balkan alliance without him. We visited some grave sites here at Christory, but in this case, visiting Dimitrov was complicated by the destruction of the monumental mausoleum that was built for him right after his untimely death. 
it only took six days to build that monumental space to house his embalmed body. Only six days. It took four attempts with dynamite to try to blast it down in 1999. It came down years after a raging debate. Destroying the mausoleum was clearly against popular opinion, but the government decided it was worth pissing off the public to remove this kind of brazen symbol of Bulgaria's communist past. Before the destruction of the mausoleum, Dimitrov was cremated and moved to a simple grave in a communal cemetery, seemingly to block any kind of hero worship. And yet, he has a subway stop named after him. Contradictions do seem to abound. So coming down off the Bulgarian delight sugar high, I came to the conclusion that meeting new phrases like Dimitrov is fabulous, but it's always a treat to visit old friends, and any excuse for a subway pit stop in a new city is a good excuse. So in this case, it was a planned meeting with an Italian that I am certain will meet many times in these podcasts because the obsession with Giuseppe Garibaldi for Christery is real. From the monumental to the minuscule, Christery has an eye for history in unexpected places. And in Bulgaria, Giuseppe Garibaldi, the rebel with a cause, who was the linchpin in building the Italian nation state, is a rather unexpected sight in Sofia. He did encourage Bulgaria and other nations to push for freedom from the Ottoman Empire on one of his many crusades encouraging people globally to establish their own home rule. But generally, he means very little to contemporary Bulgarians. And the statue really isn't particularly historic, so it does seem out of place. It was placed there rather recently in 2010, He was a distant hero by that point. The statue was small, literally ridiculously small. It's a small gesture to say thank you for the statue of Bulgarian literary patriarch Ivan Vasov that was erected in 2010 near Villa Borghese in Rome. Vasov's statue going up in Rome was supported by former Italian prime minister and seemingly wannabe rapper with his infamous bunga bunga parties, Silvio Berlusconi. It's kind of shocking considering that Berlusconi really is the furthest away from a poster child for supporting the arts that you can get, to put it mildly. He clearly was having a moment, and he clearly wasn't paying for it. So that itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny Garibaldi equestrian statue, Sophia's side, is a gesture of thanks for Rome's support of Bulgarian pride. Garibaldi's horse is rearing wildly. The style is really angular, but because it's so awkwardly high on the pedestal, you can't really look at the statue without the horse's exposed belly being the odd focal point. It's also unceremoniously blocked by a tree, so it's covered in pigeon poop. It's also set in front of a KFC and a falafel joint. And I'd be remiss not to mention that, ironically, although there's a tremendous amount of hate for Garibaldi brewing in Naples, Italy, beneath the monument of him there, it's in front of the central train station in the heart of the city as Naples spreads out grandly. In Sofia, it just simply seems to be indifference. 
So it's interesting to think about this display of friendship between Bulgaria and Italy, in part because the EU seems so weak here. It seems like more of an abstract idea in Bulgaria than a reality. Mini-me Garibaldi is simply a polite, but a less than enthusiastic gesture to a new friend. Garibaldi is lost in a sea of old, enthusiastic accolades to Russia. What can I say? It's hard to get over an old flame. And that's one of the many things I learned in Sofia. So see you next time, and thanks for coming along for the ride as Chrisery went behind the Iron Curtain. Catch you later.